That was dramatic. Well, welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today with my literary go-to, the woman who does Shakespeare for me, Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking about another Shakespeare-inspired opera. We are going to be talking about Macbeth by Verdi. And Macbeth is one of my favorites. It's probably one of the most well-known Shakespearean tragedies, not least for all the bad luck associated with it. (laughs) Oh, the Scottish play. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're not in a theater, so hopefully we won't be cursed just for for using the name. (laughs) Yeah, well, we we could always say Macbetto. (laughs) Macbetto, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I'm good. Actually, we're just going to use the the names that Shakespeare gave them, even though they do have Italianized names in Verdi's version. And Verdi, oh my goodness, Verdi loved, revered, was passionate about Shakespeare. He so appreciated what a dramatist Shakespeare was. And for a lot of his career, he wanted to do any Shakespeare. This Macbeth is his first Shakespeare opera. But for instance, King Lear was one of those plays he wanted to turn into an opera for decades and decades but it never happened. He just has Macbeth, and then late in his career, Othello, Othello, and Falstaff, Merry Wives of Windsor. So uh, he poured his heart and soul into this show. Wow, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have a, a Lear opera, especially late in life. That's It's sad he never got to that, but we'll, we'll have to be contented with what he did do. Yeah, it's, you know, there are a lot of composers where you get really sad because they die so young, people mm-hmm. like Bizet or Mozart. Verdi, Verdi had a long, productive life, and I think he didn't end up with the Lear because it, it, the stars did not align for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fault is in our stars, not ourselves, instead of the opposite way. <laughs> yes, not a quote from Macbeth. <laughs> I will be quoting Shakespeare the entire time, just so everybody's ready. <laughs> That's only appropriate. And just just as a reference, Kathleen, you've joined me doing other Shakespeare-based operas before. Yes, I have. I have a background in English lit generally, but I was always a big Shakespeare person. I've been in a lot of Shakespeare plays as an actress, and I've done a lot of writing about Shakespeare. Which ones did you and I do? I, I'm literally forgetting. We've done I, Hamlet? I have it right here. Okay. We did Hamlet <laughs> by Amboise Thomas. That was episode 82. And mm-hmm. we also did Beatrice and Benedict by oh, Berlioz. That's right. I forgot about that one. That's episode a great one. Episode 95. Nice. Oh, I love, I love Beatrice and Benedict. I mean, I just, I'm a fan of Berlioz and all he does. I, I mean, I love all the operas, but that's kind of <laughs> why I'm here. All right, Macbeth. That you heard that that music, that incredibly mm-hmm. powerful, dramatic music. Could you set us up for the opening scene of the opera, Macbeth? So if you know anything about Macbeth, you probably know that there are three witches in it. And Shakespeare wastes absolutely no time in getting us straight to what the audience is going to be interested in, which is these three witches, or they're known as the weird sisters in the text. They're actually only called witches once. But weird in Shakespearean parlance just means sort of like unnatural or or strange. So similar to, to how we refer to it. Of possibly another realm. Otherworldly, yeah. You could mm. you could use it in that sense. So we start in both the play and the opera on these three witches, but we hear this music that is very martial, that is uh, sounds as if it's about to announce something, these trumpets. Mm. And that trumpet is sort of paired with this, a bit of an, I don't know, 
uncanny sound of like something is something is off. There's mm. an announcement, there's this military music, but also there's something sort of off. And instead of opening on a martial scene, on a battlefield, any of that, we see these three strange creatures. Well, Verdi was not content with three. Verdi had a full, I mean, he, he was going to be content with three covens. Mm-hmm. Verdi had full-on female chorus. And some of the productions I've seen of this, I, I can't even count. It could be up to 50 women on the stage. And it's, it's a whole female chorus of these supernatural or connected to the supernatural realm, these beings. And they're setting an atmosphere. In fact, when Verdi was describing this opera to someone, he explained that there are three main characters in the story of Macbeth in his opera. And that's Macbeth himself, his wife, Lady Macbeth, and the witches. And that's it for main characters. Everyone else is subordinate. Well, I would say Verdi gives more importance maybe to the witches then than Macbeth the play itself does but they are certainly they only appear a few times in in the play but they are echoed everywhere especially in the character of Lady Macbeth so there's this idea of of sort of femininity gone wrong and although we are I think gendering the witches is a bit of a a difficult task. Banquo says that he's confused because he says they look like women, but they have beards. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, because mm-hmm. it's there in the original libretto. Is mm-hmm. that in the Shakespeare as well, the reference yes. to the beards? It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The beards are mentioned. When Banquo and Macbeth first enter where the witches are and see them, Banquo says, you should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. Wow, that sounds just like what is in the opera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the language is very similar. And I like the way Shakespeare says, you should be women. Mm-hmm. This idea that like, I'm seeing something that should be feminine, and yet something is off about it. There's a there's a duality to them. There's a, there's a question of gender, which will come up many times throughout this play connected to Lady Macbeth. So we have much to talk about when it comes to that. Yeah, and also I would argue of Macbeth himself, at least in the eyes of Lady Macbeth. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So these three sisters in Shakespeare's version, a whole stage full of them in Verity's version, what's their, what's their purpose? Because Verity says everything in the drama stems from these witches. Yeah. So their antecedents are, and, and why I think it's actually important that it's three. And I think Verity kind of makes a little bit less clear the metaphor when he has it be many. The three is connected to the three faiths in Greek mythology. Mm. Um, the the figure of the woman who is both mother, maiden, and crone, that's the three-faced goddess. A woman split into three, or three sisters, three as a repeating number in both mythology and the occult. This is and the Bible. <laughs> That's right. everywhere. So the idea that there are three, that they are somehow clairvoyant, they know the future in some way, that goes back to this idea of the three the three fates that see everything that has been, that is, and that will be. The difference in Shakespeare's drama is that they do not actually know what's going to happen. They say to Macbeth, and this is the, the the big message they deliver to him is that you are the thane, the like the nobleman of Glamis. You will be the thane of Cawdor, which is an, mm-hmm. another title, and then you will be king hereafter. 
But their prophecy only becomes true because Macbeth hears it and becomes obsessed with it and then takes steps to make it be. So the idea that they are able to see the future is cloudy in Shakespeare's interpretation. They are making a prophecy that we have no idea if it would have come to pass had Macbeth not taken the steps he did. Well, that's just it. It's it's pretty classical. You think back to mm-hmm. the Greek stories, the Greek dramas. Once an oracle proclaims such and such will happen, efforts to make it happen or to subvert it, it's still going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so who knows? Or, or is it? I mean, that's the question, too. Is yeah. is And Macbeth asks himself that question, too, where mm-hmm. he says, as soon as he hears the prophecy says, well, if it's going to be, let it be without me doing anything. And that's his first thought is right. to to respond in a wise way, which is to say, I'm not going to be caught by that Greek tragedy trap. <laughs> but then, of course, he is. <laughs> and then, of course, he is. We're going to listen to the witches after we listen to a little bit of how Banquo, his comrade, and Macbeth respond to this chorus of witches and this proclamation. We'll listen to them afterwards, and we want to listen to this beautiful duet that the two men have. We'll hear the chorus in there a little bit as well. But before we hear the two men respond to this prediction about Macbeth's future, Banquo says, okay, what about me? Banquo, we should mention, is he's Macbeth's second-in-command and friend. And Macbeth and Banquo, we don't really know this exactly at the beginning of the opera, but we'll know very soon. They have just come from putting down, not a rebellion exactly, but a war. with. They're in Scotland. They're, they're put down a war with Norway And part of that war involves one of the Scottish noblemen has betrayed the king. So there's treason, there's betrayal already mixed in. And Macbeth has done a very good job on the battlefield, as has Banquo, protecting the king, Duncan. So when they come in, they're fresh off of battle. They're headed to see the king. And all of a sudden, Macbeth and Banquo are waylaid by this this prophecy. And Macbeth gets his very favorable prophecy. And then Banquo, of course, as you said, says, okay, well, what about me? I may be the sidekick, but do I get a prophecy? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, he does. <laughs> and he does. So they say, your children will be kings, is the prophecy for him, that he himself will not see the throne, but that someone in his line will right. eventually be king. And there are some very interesting political connections there, which I think we should get into, but but maybe a little bit later. All right, then. Well, why don't we listen to a little bit of how this plays out in the drama of an opera and under a master like Verdi, who lavished time and attention on it, about how these two men respond. And it's a baritone, which is Macbeth, and a bass, Banquo. So that's how you'll know who's who when they're singing. And it's very interesting because originally, as you say, Macbeth is very sensible, but you can see even in the beginning, he's letting his ambition get a little bit excited by this prophecy. And Banquo is a little bit nervous about it and how his friend is reacting. Oh, 
I just love that piece of music. Oh, it's great. Anyway, we have heard the men, Banquo and Macbeth, responding to this prophecy. But part of Banquo's unease, I think, is is very nicely put in part of what he has just sung there. He says, often the wicked spirit of hell betrays us. We are cursed and abandoned. In other words, it's told us something, but we haven't understood it correctly. And then we are cursed and abandoned, standing above that abyss awaiting us. So he knows to be incredibly wary of this prophecy, whereas Macbeth seems to be intrigued, excited by it. Yeah, Banquo throughout is is just a more sensible character. He's more grounded and he's less ambitious. And his prophecy too is interesting because it's not about him, but about his children. Right. And that is one of the keys to unlock the play, I would say, and the and the opera. The theme of fertility and infertility, those who have children and those who don't, is very right. important in this play. Macbeth is childless, and it is implied strongly that they are him and his wife are barren, that they may have at one point had a child, but they are unable to have living children. Mm-hmm. Whereas Banquo has a son. Leonce, we'll meet later. Um, And the other major characters in the play all have children and they have successors. Whereas Macbeth sees himself as I could be king, but who who comes after? And that idea of barren kingship will become very important. So I think part of Banquo's reaction and its difference has to do with the fact that it is not ambition for himself, but for his children. And Banquo also doesn't force the hand of fate. Yeah, exactly. I think that's part of why he doesn't force it, because he doesn't feel the need to grasp ambition for himself. And he doesn't want to risk his own children should that grasping go wrong, as it so terribly does. Right. And just at the end of that piece there, when we hear other men join in, these are the messengers who arrive with of course. They arrive with the news. They they hail Macbeth as the fate of Cawdor. The the very prophecy, the very first leg of the prophecy that the, the witches gave, which of course lends an air of legitimacy to all of their prophecies. Yeah. If that one came true, they must all come true. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's time now to hear a little bit of the witches themselves. And you'll notice a quite a different tone in the witches when they're just on their own, their music, when they're not delivering a prophecy, which of course is ominous, but when they're on their own. And, and Verdi came in for some criticism because of the almost too light a nature of this music for the witches. But he had a very clear idea in his head that people like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had, should have a certain style of music, a certain loftiness. He kept using the word lofty, elevated. Uh, and telling his librettist that he needed words that were lofty and elevated to go with the music. The witches, on the other hand, are a little, they're just from a different world. And it, it, it sounds to our ears almost as a little cute, I think. But uh, let's sample the witches. Oh! 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Verdi's Macbeth. And Macbeth has received the prophecy with his friend Banquo, and he's going to communicate that to his life partner in this next scene. Yes. So the other more, maybe even more famous character than Macbeth in this is Lady Macbeth. And she is one of the great female roles in Shakespeare and in opera. He writes her a letter to tell her everything that has happened. He talks about the witches. He talks about the fact that he's now the Thane of Cawdor. And he also tells her that in consequence of Duncan the king bestowing this new honor upon him, Duncan also is going to visit that night and stay at their castle. He's very honest with her. He doesn't hide anything from her. One of the fantastic things about this play is that there is absolutely no hint of an unequal marriage in terms of gender for the times. Lady Macbeth doesn't even make a pretense of being servile to her husband or or obeying him or No, she's not she's not submissive. <laughs> no, not at all. She's in fact as we'll we'll talk about in a minute, the sort of dominant masculine partner in the play. She's coded very masculine. Uh, so anyway, they, they have a very equal marriage. It is an absolutely honest marriage. And so he unfolds everything that has happened to her in a letter, which she then reads aloud for the audience to hear what he has said. Yes. And the clip that we're going to play coming up right now is this beginning of this second scene of Macbeth and this beautiful section of orchestral music. And then we have Lady Macbeth reading the letter. Now, I've seen some productions where there's like a voiceover of Macbeth reading it, but it's traditional, as Verdi intended, for Lady Macbeth herself to read it. And she reads it, not recitative, she reads it speaking without singing at all. And this is such an interesting piece because it, pour, I mean, this is the only speaking part in the, in the show. This will include, and other parts of the opera will include, a cappella singing before the orchestra joins in. Fascinating to me anyway, for, for greater emphasis, there's this a cappella portion without any of the instruments playing, just the voice. And then the instruments will join in and you get a sense of her personality right from the start when she responds to the message that's in this letter. I do love that in both the opera and the original play, she reads out his letter because it's a neat trick of showing us something about their relationship and about her, because everything Macbeth is telling her, we already know. Right. It's not expository. It's not, hey, let me catch the audience up. We know all of this, but now we understand how Macbeth is internalizing it and how he's relating it to somebody who's close to him. So we get an idea of where his mind stands in relation to hers very early before we see them together. It's a it's a very neat narrative trick. I like that. And I like you referencing where their mind stands because where her mind stands and where his mind stands, those are key issues that go throughout <laughs> this story. <laughs> okay, let's hear Lady Macbeth. Un servo al capo mio, 
Racchiudi in corro questo segreto. Addio. a sense of who Lady Macbeth is. She's a determined woman, and with the king expected to arrive, her mind has started working. And then Macbeth himself appears, and it's just the two of them, husband and wife, in this strong relationship between the two partners. Well, right before, just backing up a just tiny bit, because I can't not say it, right before Macbeth comes in, we have probably the most famous monologue for Lady Macbeth in the play, which is the the unsex me monologue. Oh, yes. Although, you know, Out Damn Spot has a certain place of reverence too, but that's later. Carry on. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, for our purposes, this is particularly important because she is saying here that she wishes she were a man and she's calling upon spirits, demons, whoever, whoever's listening. She says, come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. She's basically saying, I want to make this thing happen. It is not normal in a feminine person to want to murder, (laughs) to have the strength to murder. So make me someone who is not a woman, basically unsex me and... She, she goes even further. She says, come to my woman's breast and take my milk for all. So we already talked about the fact that she is barren. She's not oh. able to have children. So she's even furthering this. She's saying, I want to be this unmotherly, unfeminine, hard creature who can accomplish this task because the ambition for her is so strong to be Queen of Scotland. So, of course, we get this wonderful setup. There's absolutely no mistaking her opinion on the subject. Yes, and she calls on the agents of hell mm-hmm. to assist her in all of this. So, so it, in a way, she's tying herself to these supernatural beings or trying to tap into that power. Mm-hmm. Yes, and there's a lot of connections between what Lady Macbeth says throughout the play or the opera and what the witches say. Oh, <laughs> 
she said all of this can't mistake what she what she's feeling on all this and Macbeth comes in and she hails him as Glamis and as Cawdor and as King Hereafter so she echoes exactly the witch's words now that he's related them to her she calls him the king yes he, he's still on the fence, I'll say, but she absolutely is not. And it's a very compact scene that Verdi and Librettus have, have created here. And he says, well, what are you saying? She's like, you understand me. Mm-hmm. And it's not very long. He's like, yeah, I, I understand you. I absolutely understand you. Yeah, it's the same in the play. She speaks quite a lot in this scene, and he says very little. Mm. He says facts. He says, Duncan is coming here tonight. Okay, let's talk about this later. That's basically all he says. But she's the one that that's unfolding her her thoughts and her plans. And Macbeth expresses just a little bit of concern. What if the blow should fail? What if I should attempt this but not succeed? Lady Macbeth basically says, "Well, man up. <laughs> if you're yeah. if you're strong enough, this won't fail." Yeah. There's a very famous line in the play which is, "Screw your courage to the sticking place," which comes in a in a scene a few scenes after this one where she says, if you are courageous, then we are not going to fail. Failure is not an option. This is a repeated pep talk she has to give to him Mm -hmm. or directional talk that she has to say, listen, buddy, we've got goals. You need to be strong enough to achieve them. And it, it might be worth saying briefly now that the structure has these two characters and it's often described as a structure that looks kind of like an X where you have Macbeth is down and he goes up at at the play. And and Lady Macbeth is up. She's very powerful when you first meet her, and she mm-hmm. descends as the play goes on. They have specific things about them when we first meet them. Macbeth is unsure. He's weak. He is of two minds. He's experiencing a lot of uncertainty. She's not un- uncertain. She's very, very strong. She has a plan. She carries it out. But later on, the consequences of what she's done catch up with her mentally, and she starts to deteriorate, whereas Mm -hmm. Macbeth is the opposite. He becomes almost inhuman. He stops caring. He loses what she calls the milk of human kindness as the play Mm. goes on. You're just throwing out those Shakespeare quotes right and left, aren't you? (laughs) The ones we don't know where they come from. Let us know. (laughs) Well, those are all Macbeth. (laughs) Those are all Macbeth. Well, no sooner have they decided their plan of action, then we have the arrival of the king himself, Duncan. Tell us a little bit about Duncan as a king. Duncan is a good king. He's represented in the play as a king associated with fertility, with growth, with springtime, with light, with birds, with, uh, with, with life, basically. He has been putting down this, this war. There has been treason against him. We, we know that the previous Thane of Cawdor is executed in one of the, the earlier scenes for treason, which is why Macbeth has his title now. His rule is not ironclad, but he is generally spoken of in the play as a good and wise fatherly figure. Mm. Lady Macbeth will say later on that she could have killed him herself if he didn't look like her father sleeping. Oh. And there's this image of him as, as the father of the country. So his death is a kind of patricide. But I will say... And I want to weave a little bit of contemporary politics. And by contemporary, I mean Shakespeare's time, not ours. Oh, that kind of contemporary. Okay. (laughs) Shakespeare's time and Verity's time too. But there's some political notions that I want to introduce throughout. One of them is that Shakespeare's writing for James 
who is king of Scotland and he's king of England. The successor to Elizabeth I. Right, very recently become king of England. And there is a very much an understanding that, that Scotland is being presented as sort of unruly, wild, slipping into chaos, mm. whereas England in this play will be presented as orderly, as having a strong line of succession, etc. So that is the way Duncan is presented to, is, is sort of the last good king of Scotland, but that yeah. England will need to step in and, and help. Well, let's listen to a little bit of this conversation between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth that we just spoke of when they're determining their plan and becoming strong about it, immediately transitioning into this arrival of Duncan. And it can be shortened in productions of the opera. It's a two and a half minute processional march. But again, it's a, it's a big contrast in tone when it shows up. It's it's sort of martial, but it's it's jaunty. It's peppy. It's and it feels like carnival-like to me, honestly, but it, it changes the mood completely when the good King Duncan shows up and is greeted lovingly by everyone who's around. talking a lot about Shakespeare and the original source material, and I will continue doing that. But thank uh, you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Pat, who is the librettist who adapted this play? Of course, it's a librettist, in fact, that Verdi ended up writing 10 operas with Francesco Maria Piave. And he had done Ernani with him, two other operas, and then Macbeth, and then the rest are afterwards. But oh, my goodness, the letters that Verdi writes to Piave, it's a wonder if someone had written to me that way, I'd be tempted to just walk out. Oh, I guess Piave knew that Verdi could be a little prickly and difficult to deal with, but he was constantly saying, make sure your verses are short. There's this wonderful statement that he makes to Piave to sort of explain why he, he's being so particular. He says, this tragedy is one of the greatest creations of man. This is what Verdi writes to his librettist. If we can't make something great out of it, let us at least try to do something out of the ordinary. And in fact, he does that. This is moving his style of opera writing in a more music drama sort of direction. But he badgers Piave constantly. You need to be lofty. You need to write in a noble style, except for the witches, of course. They're different. And he says, after he's received pages from Piave, you need to be more concise, more lofty, you know, more exalted, more. And it's just criticism, criticism, criticism. And when it's all over, there's this bit that he writes to him. Of course, you're not in the slightest bit wrong about the libretto being good. 
Except for having neglected the last two acts in an incredible way. Well, it's a four-act opera. So the last two acts have been neglected completely, says Verdi. So 50% of it. <laughs> says, oh, well, San Andrea has come to my rescue and to yours. Well, who's San Andrea, you wonder? Well, it's Andrea Maffei. Maffei is a good friend of Verdi's. I mean, they would even travel together to take the waters and things like that. And and Maffei is a poet, a man of letters. He he wants to be a librettist, and he does write a few along the way, but he's never a, a companion to Verdi professionally the way that Piave is. But he does give to Maffei some sections to completely rework. When the opera premiered in 1847, Piave's name was even taken off as having done the libretto, even though most of the libretto was Piave's. I'm going to finish that bit that he wrote. Ah, well, San Andrea has come to my rescue and to yours and more especially to mine. Since, to be honest, I couldn't have set your verses to music. Talk about insulting. Still, we've managed to put it all right now by changing almost everything. Terrible. Well, they do make up. And by the way, Piave is the, the librettist who goes on to write two of Verdi's most famous enduring operas, Rigoletto and La Traviata. So they, they made up, even in spite of all the insults that, that Verdi hurled at Piave. Okay. So that's a bit on who's putting these words in order. And of course, Piave is taking bits of the Shakespeare or Italian version of the bits of Shakespeare. And Maffei, the friend that Verdi turned to over and over again, he was a great Shakespeare lover and in fact does do it later on, an Italian language translation of Macbeth. Okay, meanwhile, back to Duncan and the home of the Macbeths. Yes. Well, Macbeth has come around to this idea that he is going to kill the king, but he's still not, he's not a hundred percent there, but he's trying to screw his courage to the sticking place. So he has (laughs) in grand Shakespearean fashion, a deep conversation with himself and has this beautiful monologue that, well, let me not say beautiful. He has this very effective monologue about whether he's going to do the deed and how he's going to do the deed. This is in the play known as the dagger monologue, because one of the famous lines from it is, is this a dagger I see before me? And he imagines that he is seeing a bloody dagger hanging in the air before him, spurring him on, making him aware that he can, can make this choice. He can grasp the dagger and go in and kill Duncan, or he can turn around and, and, and not make this choice. But he decides that he is going to kill Duncan and grasp the dagger by the end of his monologue. Yes, and there's a bell that features in this action. Have my wife alert me when my night's drink is ready with a bell. And when that bell rings, he, in fact, realizes his decision is made. And Duncan, this is the bell that summons you to heaven or to hell. And he does, he does still waffle. You know, Lady Macbeth comes in and she says, hey, like, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. uh, why are you out here talking to yourself? Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, he's been really, the, the king has been kind to me. He's given me all these honors. Maybe this, this prophecy will come true all on its own. As he said before, you know, he's sort of hoping that, that maybe this will still happen even if I don't have to do anything. And she yeah. slaps him down so hard. She says, why are you so green, so pale, such a coward. And one of the really interesting arguments she makes is, you've already decided in your mind that you want this. So 
if you're a man, you will follow through. Then mm. is it worse to decide in your mind that you want to kill him than to actually kill him? Like, you've already done that. You might as well do the act too, which is such a fascinating attempt at logic there. Yeah, questionable advice. but <laughs> Yeah, and, th- and that if you don't do it, if you see something you want and you decide you want it, but you don't follow through, that you mm. live a coward then. And he, he says, I dare do all that may become a man. So there's that, again, his obsession with asserting he's the man in the relationship, his own masculinity, and her saying, I am the one who is the man in this relationship. She says very sort of famously that I know what it's like to nurse a child. But if I had promised someone that I would kill that child, I would do it, even if it were my own child. Oh. Um, so she's, yeah. And he, he responds with another wonderful line. He says, bring forth men, children only. He says, you should only have men mm. be born from your body. But of course, as we know, she is she's un- uh, incapable of having any children. So by the end of the scene, this, this wonderful back and forth between the two of them he is is settled and, and decided he's going to go and commit this murder. Right. And in this opera, when he leaves the stage, it's just for a brief moment. He's off stage murdering Duncan. And that's the one little moment, quick little line, where you see just a little bit of uncertainty creeping into Lady Macbeth, where she, she wonders out loud, what if he was aroused from his sleep before the fatal blow? But Seconds later, Macbeth has re-entered the scene with a bloody dagger mm-hmm. and says, okay, it's done. Yes. And she chides him for this, though, because yeah. she's had a plan this whole time that they're going to blame right. his uh, Duncan's guards, that they have drugged the guards' wine so they're asleep. They're going to smear blood on the guards, leave the bloody daggers, and everyone will believe. Oh, and Macbeth forgets in the... Right. of the moment, he just comes back and shows his bloody dagger to her and says it's done. And when she tells him to go back, he says, no, I can't. Yeah. There's this really interesting moment where he says, I couldn't say amen, that yeah. one of the guards sort of calls out in his sleep a, a prayer. And he says, normally I would have said amen. I would have, I would have said the, the normal religious response. And he says, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. He says, why couldn't I? He said, I needed prayers more than then than any time ever in my life. Why couldn't I say it? And she sees he's sort of falling apart a little bit, that she's made him do this thing and she starts to see the guilt of it tell on his face. And that's when she really is like, no way, we're not going to fall apart now. Yeah. And in the opera, she sings madness or folie, folie. Mm -hmm. So she takes the daggers (sighs) and she goes back into the room and she wipes the daggers in the king's blood, places them on the two hapless victims. Yeah and shows that she is just as capable of performing this deed as he is. Yeah, and importantly, when Macbeth asks her, and who who was that sleeping in the next room? There was somebody there. She says, oh yeah, that's the king's son, who you would assume would be stepping up to the throne afterwards. He is left unmolested, mm-hmm. but we learn pretty quickly that his son, Malcolm, sensing danger, has fled. Yeah, so there's an interesting subplot that I'll very briefly summarize here, which is that he has two sons, Duncan. He has Donald Bain and and Malcolm, who's the oldest. In Scottish politics at this time, inheritance was not hereditary. So having a son didn't necessarily mean that that son would become king once you passed. So earlier in the play, he 
says to his son, I'm going to make you the crown prince, basically. And Macbeth mm-hmm. knows this and, and is there and witnesses this. And that's the first time that Macbeth realizes that the path is not clear for him to become king unless he does something. So that right. is a, it's a, it's a key moment, but it's very small in the play. But that's part of what encourages Macbeth to actually take action because he has this thing in his mind where he thinks, well, you know, he doesn't have an heir. Duncan doesn't have an heir. Maybe he'll name me as his heir and really make me his son in a, in a way. But he chooses to make Malcolm his, his son. So Malcolm is a threat to Macbeth. And Malcolm and his brother realize this, that as soon as their father's body is discovered in a little bit, they say, we need to get out of here. Right. Okay. And after she says, that's foolishness, you not being able to say amen, that's meaningless, don't think about it. Mm -hmm. He keeps going down that road. He says, I heard a voice in me saying, Macbeth, you'll have only thorns for a pillow. You will never sleep again. Sleep no more. Sleep no more, Macbeth. <laughs> and she's she's got no patience for this nah. behavior. She says, wash your hands and it's all good. Yeah, he says, all the water in the oceans couldn't wash my hands clean. Mm-hmm. And when she gets blood on her hands at this point, she says, oh, just a sprinkle will do. Yeah. And of course, later, what's coming yeah. up is that they will reverse positions and, and she will be the one who can't wash her hands clean. She will be the one who can't sleep. Right. Well... Sooner or later, Duncan's murdered body has to be found. Yes. So the Macbeths have set it up so that when his body is discovered, they will basically feign ignorance. So Macduff and Banquo show up early in the morning the next day. Everyone is still abed and they go in to, to wake the king because the king has asked to be woken early. He's a king. He's got a lot to do. Then Macduff exclaims in horror because he discovers the slain body of Duncan. Yes, and he can't even explain it to Banquo. He he sends Banquo in there to look for himself. And at this point, everyone in the castle is awakened and everyone floods in. And and we have not only Lady Macbeth and Macbeth show up, but we have everyone in the entourages. And and basically, it's the full-on chorus is on stage and... They can't quite believe what has happened. And this end of act one, which is this scene with everyone responding to the death of the king is so powerful. And it's one of these moments where Verdi employs the acapella strategy to increase the drama. So it's like a prayer that they all sing in this beautiful choral piece. Every staging I've ever seen Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are very clearly visible, singing this prayer to God, asking for God to punish the evildoer, and they're right in there with everyone else, responding how everyone else is responding, in a sense, damning themselves mm-hmm. by doing this. But it is it is a powerful, beautiful piece of everyone responding, starts off a cappella in a prayer, and then builds and builds into something larger with the orchestra. Thank you. 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was the end of Act One of Verdi's Macbeth. The assembled masses at the Macbeth's castle are grieving the loss of good King Duncan. And the Macbeths are right there, feigning innocence along with everybody. So before we start with Act Two, Kathleen, I want to just mention that what we're listening to now and what is typically, not exclusively, but typically performed these days is not exactly the same opera that Verdi put on at its premiere in 1847. It's the version that Verdi modified for its premiere in Paris in 1865. So almost 20 years later, he reworks this opera. I I told you before about how very, very important this opera was to him. Unlike with most of his operas, he put a hand in with these revivals, as they called it, so subsequent seasons when the opera was mounted. He would send instructions to people about what, what mattered, what was important. Well, this opportunity to have a big hit in Paris with this opera that he loved so well and had been so well received in Italy, he had to do a couple of things that he wanted to do and that the Parisians wanted him to do. For instance, if you're going to have an opera in Paris, There's an element that must be there that's not mandatory for Italian operas. (laughs) Is it a grand ballet? (laughs) It's a ballet. So they had to add ballet music. They put the ballet in pretty close to the beginning of the third act. So that's coming up. It happens as a, a part of one of the witches' scenes. There are other songs and pieces which are uh, removed, inserted, reworked, and I might mention those a little bit as we go along. There wasn't much changed in the first act, so I didn't need to mention it then. But pretty quickly in the second act, which we're about to jump into, is this this beautiful aria that Lady Macbeth sings. I'll try my Italian. La luce langua, the light is fading. So the light is fading, and this Some people argue, oh, it doesn't fit in perfectly crafted the way everything was in his first version of the opera, but it's it's a much loved aria that she gives. And it's Lady Macbeth alone, and you see a little bit of what you were talking about, because she feels internally fully complicit, Mm -hmm. fully an actor in the murder. But before she sings this aria, there is a little scene between Lady Macbeth and her husband and how they're dealing with the fallout of this murder. Yeah, so... One of the tragic ironies of this play and this opera is that as soon as Macbeth actually becomes king, he suffers terribly. He, he doesn't ever really have any happiness in being king, and neither does she in being queen. And his first yes. obsession once he becomes king is that they are barren, that they don't have anyone to pass this title on to. So he's sort of raging and asking her, he says, you know, did I, did I kill the king only for Banquo's children to become king? Did I secure the throne just for him? That's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Should have thought of that sooner. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and interestingly, that one of the things I watched to prepare for this was I watched the new Denzel Washington Macbeth mm. from 2021. And Francis McDormand plays his Lady Macbeth. And they are explicitly played as much older than this role is usually played. Usually this is played as they are a young married couple, that he's a young soldier, maybe in his 30s, prime of their lives. But they were played as as in their 60s. And mm. so you're looking at people who are looking at the end of their lives at, at having no one to pass on this legacy to imminently, which I always think is an interesting interpretation. But yeah, so he's he's raging at this and thinking, 
maybe the only way to secure that this prophecy comes true and stays true for me and that the prophecy for Ben Guo doesn't come true is that I need to do some more murder in. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. which I think you start to see her go hold up a second that she's okay with the original act, but the more it spirals and the more bodies pile up, the less she is into this. Um, so anyway, this is this is really them talking about whether or not he should kill Banquo and Leonce, who is Banquo's young son. Right, because he needs to stamp out this possibility of Banquo's children coming to the throne. But that's what the prophecy said would happen. And so far, the prophecies have worked. Yes, exactly. And we see here that Macbeth is continuing to slip in his... I don't know, his his ability to see things clearly, because if taking an action made the witch's prophecy true for him, mm-hmm. then it is likely by that same logic that the witch's prophecy is going to come true for Banquo as well, no matter what actions they take, or maybe even because of the actions that they take. But he's not thinking that clearly because his ego and his fear is in the way. Right. So when she's left alone, that's when Lady Macbeth will sing this aria, The Light is Fading, and she's dealing with all this, but she ends it by saying, The throne, the scepter, at last you're mine, and every other living desire is quieted and calmed because of it. So she, at this point, is at peace with what they're doing. She's talked herself into it. It's okay, because we're going to take care of Banquo and any progeny that might come from him.
Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have come to peace briefly, momentarily, fleetingly, <laughs> with the fact that they need to commit more murder to secure the places that they have already committed heinous crimes to achieve. And we quickly move to a new scene and we fill up the stage again with the male chorus. This time, the goons, the assassins, the evildoers. Why you need to send a whole battalion to kill one man and his son? It's an operatic reason. Yeah, this is this is an operatic version. In the in the play, it's just two poor low lives that Macbeth finds and, and bribes to commit the murder. Hired hands. Yes, but slightly more epic in the opera. Yeah. And uh and Banquo and his son, when we see them, recognize the seriousness of the situation. And Banquo is able to tell his son to flee, which he does successfully. Yes, so Macbeth, in attempting to stamp out Banquo's line and commit a, a, a much more heinous murder, the murder of a friend, Banquo was, I mean, obviously Duncan was also innocent, but there's, there's something particularly heinous about the murder of a close friend and then the murder of a child as well. And so Macbeth is taking his steps forward in increasing evil. Yeah. Well, let's hear another choral piece from Verdi and these are the assassins. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find scores of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm here with Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, I'm so glad to have you helping out with this Shakespeare-based opera. Yes, I'm so happy to be to be talking Shakespeare again with you, Pat. Yeah, Verdi's Macbeth. He Verdi, oh, he adored Shakespeare. Well, before we go any further with our story, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and thank the people who created this wonderful CD that we've been listening to today. It was recorded in 1976 with the New Philharmonia Orchestra led by Ricardo Muti and the Ambrosian Opera Chorus under chorus master John McCarthy. And our singers, Macbeth is played by Cheryl Milnes. Lady Macbeth is sung by Fiorenza Cosotto. Banquo is Ruggiero Raimondi. Macduff is Jose Carreras. 
Malcolm is Giuliano Bernardi. Yeah, not a long list of main characters, but I think the chorus gets its work in this opera. They have plenty to do, many choral pieces. <laughs> and another pause to say, if you're enjoying hearing Kathleen's thoughts and ideas, you are in for a treat if you haven't visited her blog, which you can find on Substack, Constructive Criticism. Kathleen, I don't know how you keep up with all of the things that are going on on TV, in movies, in books, but you don't just call attention to it. You say such interesting things about these about these works of art. Well, I, I don't sleep much and I do have a time turner, so that helps. <laughs> Yes, I actually am, am doing a few posts on some Shakespeare adaptations coming up inspired by our work here on Macbeth. So stay tuned. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait. I'm always down for a good Shakespeare. Well, that's Constructive Criticism and Kathleen Vandewill. So thanks, Kathleen. And I'm so glad you have time. Well, the time turner helps, I guess. Time <laughs> to does. do opera for everyone <laughs> with me. All right. Well, you know what time it is. It is the Opera Helmet quiz time. Yes, although we may actually call this the Opera Helmet uh, recap. <laughs> Summary, recap time, yes. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended there. Recap. So bad. <laughs> yes, so when we last saw our tragic characters, mm. uh, a series of murders had been committed. Macbeth is a Scottish nobleman who stumbles upon a very suspicious group of, of women, witches, yes. who, who give him a prophecy, prophecy in scare quotes there, about his future, saying that he will become the king. And then the king himself ends up sleeping the night in Macbeth's home. Macbeth and his wife, the famous, infamous Lady Macbeth, conspire mm. to kill the king so that Macbeth can become king himself. But... One thing leads to another, and after they've committed this deed, Macbeth begins to feel he has to consolidate that power. He and Lady Macbeth are childless, and so they turn to the other half of the witch's prophecy, his friend Banquo, who has been told that his children will be kings. Yes. And so when we left our characters, mm. Macbeth had chosen to, to murder Banquo and attempt to murder Banquo's child, Fleance, as well. Yeah, it's it's pretty dark. Once you've started down this path where you're willing to do anything for the power for fulfilling your ambition, it becomes really anything and it's it's horrifying. So we just listened to the conspirators as they're getting ready to encounter and murder Banquo and his son. It can be staged a lot of different ways. It can be just all confusion or there can be a full-on battle scene with Banquo and some of these assassins. But at the end of the day, Banquo ends up dead mm -hmm. and Fleance is gone. He runs away. He escapes, thereby leaving that little window open for the prophecy to come true. Mm -hmm. And we cut very quickly to a party scene. The Macbeths are entertaining at home. Yes. So in the original source material that Shakespeare used, which is called Hollinshed's Chronicles, Macbeth is presented as actually having been king for 10 years. He rules and, and rules actually quite well. Oh. But Shakespeare decides to truncate that and make his reign a much, much shorter, make it more chaotic one. But this is a scene of, of uh, things are sort of normal. It's the only time in the play, I would say, that things seem to be on a normal footing. They're not They're not normal for very long. <laughs> not normal for very long. Macbeth are giving this, this party, consolidating their power, celebrating his accession to the throne. All their supporters are there. Mm. But Macbeth, having 
found out that Banquo has been successfully dispatched, but Fleance has not been successfully dispatched. And that information comes right mid-party. It's yes. just a little aside, a little conversation with a guy who has blood smeared on him. He's going <laughs> to send him into a bit of a spiral. Yes, yes. And so it opens pretty quickly with Lady Macbeth delivering one of those songs that we find in so many operas. It's a drinking song. Mm-hmm. But this drinking song's a little different. Yeah, it, one of the themes of the play is, and, and the opera is the importance of hospitality, of, of inviting mm-hmm. people to drink and, and eat at your table. This is something that the Macbeths have done with Duncan, the king. They invited yeah. him to drink and eat at their table, sleep in, in their house. And then yeah. they violated that hospitality by killing him mm-hmm. in his sleep. So any attempt to have a scene of good health and and drinking and merriment and hospitality is going to be undercut by what a bunch of hypocrites our hosts are. Yes, they are. And Lady Macbeth, it's just, she delivers this very ominous song. I mean, she's trying to be gay and merry and lively and hospitable, but it's just, it's an uneasy feeling. And she will return to this song later as the party is spiraling out of control. But I wanted to mention one thing. I, I talked um, at the end of the last half about the fact that Verdi did a lot of reworking of the particularly second, third, and fourth act to get ready for this Paris premiere in the mid-60s, the mid-1860s. And one of the things that the Parisians said is, ah, Lady Macbeth has so many things to sing. Why don't you give it to Macduff? He's there, which he is. And why don't you let him sing the drinking song? Verdi said, are you not hearing me about the way the drama of this unfolds? He says, it's got to be Lady Macbeth. It's her party. It's her house. The drama demands it. Everything is about the drama. And he's willing to violate so many of the rules because part of what was going on there, they were like, hey, we're hiring this great tenor. And he's got one song, which we haven't come to yet in the story. And Verdi's like, that's right. And I wrote a really good song for Macduff. And if he has a good enough voice, he will distinguish himself and he'll get attention. Don't talk to me anymore about messing up my drama. (laughs) (laughs) And he's completely right. I stand by that decision. It wouldn't make any sense to to have Macduff be the one who's welcoming people to the home. It would only even out things for the singers is all. Exactly right. Verdi was like, that's not my my concern. And so one of the key elements of the scene is that a messenger comes in to tell Macbeth, the messenger is the assassin himself, who has blood on his face, comes in after Lady Macbeth has sung this welcoming drinking song to tell Macbeth that Banquo has been killed, but that Fleance, the son, has survived and fled. And this destroys the mood of the party as far as Macbeth is concerned and Lady Macbeth instantly notices, says, you know, what what's drawn you away from our party? Right. And Macbeth's answer is so odd. Yeah. He says, Banquo is not here. He says he would have completed this party, this chosen circle. Yeah. But he's not here. And Lady Macbeth sort of plays along and says, okay, well, yeah, he said he would be here, but he, you know, he, he kind of flaked on us. <laughs> Right. And this is the man who, right in the very first scene that we see, they're comrades in arms. They're best buddies. Mm-hmm. They've been victorious together in battle, but well, terribly wrong. So there's a there's an oddness here where it's it's unclear whether Macbeth is kind of losing it here 
Yeah. And genuinely is wondering why Banquo isn't there, even though he's just received this news. And I think Lady Macbeth, she knows that this was the plan. Right. So he says, Macbeth says, then I'll go sit down in his chair. And the question is, <laughs> okay, what is that? You know, that it's so it's so odd and it's so um, telling of his guilt in a way. And yeah. then, of course, this very famous scene, Banquo's ghost appears sitting in his chair. And Macbeth absolutely cannot understand. He says, who's done this? Is this a joke? And then he's he's talking to this ghost and everybody around him is like, what is going on? Right. Because no one else can see the ghost. Yeah. Because it's, it's a ghost haunting him because he's the murderer. That's right. And, and this is staged in different ways. Sometimes the ghost is literally there. Sometimes he's not there. The, the version I saw of the play, he was a, a, a raven that had been trapped in the hall wow. and was fluttering around. And Macbeth was speaking to the raven as if it were a man. And everybody's like, what's going on? Wow. But Lady Macbeth tries to cover for him, says, oh, you know, he has this illness and sometimes he just gets like this, which <laughs> pay no <laughs> attention to my husband. Way to cover <laughs> But then, and then she's like in his ear, are you a man? Yeah. Bringing up this issue again of his strength. Mm -hmm. Pull it together, my husband. Exactly. And he tries. He tries. He tries. He tries to pull it together. She starts to sing this drinking song again. He says, forgive me, everyone. He tells her, sing the song again. We're going to forget that this happened, but let's not forget Banquo is not with us. He can't stop uh, himself from just bringing it up again, that there's a ghost at the feast, as they say. Let's hear a little bit of this second rendition of Lady Macbeth's drinking song and see if you, you hear that uh, out of joint feeling as she tries very hard to get things back on track. for everyone and we are listening to Verdi's Macbeth and Macbeth is not well at his own party he is seeing the ghost of his good friend who he had murdered 
That would put anyone off off their balance, I think. And Lady Macbeth is getting embarrassed and annoyed, and not for the first time in this opera. She will say, the deed is done, the crime is done, what's done is done, you cannot change it. And that is said over and over again. Yes, Macbeth, is his um, arc throughout the play is, I can't do this thing even though I kind of want to, then I yeah. do it and I feel really guilty about it, then I choose to not feel guilty about it, now I feel nothing. And her arc is the opposite. It's, I feel nothing, let's do what we need to do, there's no guilt about the act, and then she just starts to feel more and more guilty and it drives her mad. Right. So continuing that that way that they kind of are opposite of each other, Macbeth is kind of in the, I feel really guilty about it and it's driving me mad stage. And meanwhile, we've got the whole chorus there responding to things, but we, we do hear Macduff speak out at this scene and he says, this land has become a den of thieves. Mm. Macduff is part of this inner circle, but he's he's not privy to what's really going on, and he's certainly not comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Part of what happens at the end here is Macbeth will really just stop being able to pull himself together and let us know that, that this ghost is demanding blood from him. And, and the only thing he can do is go back to the witches to see if he can learn more of the prophecy or learn how to navigate the mess that he's in.
the beginning of Act 3, we are back with the witches. They have some of their probably more recognizable lines. Yes. <laughs> double, double, toil and trouble, mm-hmm. oil and bubble, all of those those things that we associated with witches but probably don't know that it's from Macbeth. It's from Macbeth. Yeah. They have an incantation, they have a cauldron, and they are just having a grand old time. And a recipe in. they have of something yeah, it is that they're in making. And- <laughs> children's fingers and the heart of a heretic and the blood of a monkey, etc. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great it's, fun. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. And apparently this is one of the pieces that was rewritten by Verdi's friend Maffei, the text of it, because he was so unhappy with Piave's work. But later people would say this was one of the less successful pieces. And Verdi said, yeah, you know what? Piave was right. Should have gone with him. So I guess he gets credit for <laughs> saying I was a little too rough on Piave. You'd love to read some, some if there was backstage gossip, <laughs> gossip rags from that time. It would have been oh, great. Man. Well, we just have the letters as far as I know anyway. And it's, this is the last time we're really going to spend time with the witches. So I do want to say that in Shakespeare's time, this play is being presented to James. And James is one of the most infamous witch hunters of history. King James, the Catholic who follows the Protestant Elizabeth I. Yes. So King James was first king of Scotland and then became Mm. king of both England and Scotland on the death of Elizabeth. And he was obsessive about witch hunting. And he burned many, many women in his day for witchcraft and men. And so it is extremely interesting that the witches play such an important role in a play that was written and performed for him. Yes. Yeah. Shakespeare is, there's a lot of little political notes in a lot of Shakespeare plays, but I think Macbeth is one of the most explicitly political, partly for that reason. There is a sense in which James's obsession with witch hunting really stained his name as a king later on. Hmm. And I think Shakespeare does a good job of understanding that that obsession that James has with witch hunting and the obsession that Macbeth has with the the witches is tied. But he finds a way to say that, that I think the audience understands as a criticism of James, but James himself would not see as a criticism. And that double tongue is very Shakespeare. Right, of course, because Macbeth is right from the front. We know that he's a criminal. He's a murderer. Mm -hmm. He's rapacious, you know, Mm -hmm. and James would never see himself that way. That's fascinating. And by the way, this James I of England, he's the James in the King James Bible. Yes, he is the James in the King James Bible. He is the the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Yes. So a pretty famous figure in, in history. And yes, a big Catholic. And there is... Another little political element going on here, which is that the Guy Fawkes controversy, the attempt to- Gunpowder plot, yes. Yeah, blow up parliament and kill this king, an anti-Catholic plot, has happened right around the same time. So it happened one year before this play was performed. So a play that's about treason and killing a Scottish king and what happens to the world when you do upset the balance of nature that way was performed right after the gunpowder plot and conspiracy was, was fizzled out. Yeah, honestly, it's one of the glories of Shakespeare that he can take something that that makes all the sense in the world in his own time period, and yet he writes it in such a universal, enduring way that it's great to know that stuff, but you don't actually have to know it all to appreciate the characters and the motivations and what they're doing here. Yes, absolutely. Well, here, after the witches have done all their incantations, is where the Parisians 
got their ballet here in the beginning of Act Three. It's beautiful music. It's about 12 minutes long, and it's almost never done in performance these days. <laughs> so <laughs> I imagine you can find that music if you look for it, the ballet from Verdi's Macbeth. It's lovely. But I have yet, I've seen many versions of this, and I have yet to see the ballet included. And so then after the ballet is Macbeth showing up to find out from these witches more of the prophecy. So Macbeth shows up and he says to the witches, look, you gave me this prophecy, but I need more information, which of course they are not going to be willing to give him easily. Mm. So they give him a series of apparitions, images that, well, let me say, give us the audience, I think more information than give Macbeth. Yeah. So for instance, <laughs> uh, you know, a blood-stained child appears. Oh. There's a series of children, series of images. In the original Shakespeare play, the last image usually would be a projected line of kings that would lead to James, because the yeah. idea is that this line, once restored with the help of the English monarchy, would lead directly to the king that's being performed for. But in the opera, what's really germane is the prophecy that two things must happen before Macbeth will be defeated. One is that Burnham Wood, which is the, the forest around the castle, will come to the steps of his castle, basically, that somehow the forest will move, something that seems impossible. Right. And he takes comfort in that. Yeah, exactly. As one would. It's an impossible. It's like, well, it's basically when pigs fly is kind of what they're saying. Yeah. And then the second is that no man born of woman can defeat Macbeth. Yeah. So again, a very comforting prophecy. And Macbeth has absolutely nothing to worry about or so. Well, and haven't they also told him, beware of Macduff? Yes, yes. So he's thought Macduff is just one of his his noble allies, but this is the first time he starts to think that maybe he needs to watch him. And he's right. Well, he is right, but he's part of the problem, isn't he? <laughs> well, yes. And Macduff wouldn't have anything to go against if Macbeth wasn't on a murdering spree. <laughs> exactly. So all of these visions, some things that seem reassuring to Macbeth, but he's he's still concerned. He's still deeply concerned. Yes. If you win your throne by murdering people, it probably never feels secure. Yeah, particularly since they end the encounter showing this line of kings. And we know that's not Macbeth's line. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Macbeth thinks is the long-term game plan, but he's not comfortable with this line coming out of Banquo. Yes. Well, this is all over. And when Macbeth and Lady Macbeth encounter each other again... It's an amazing scene. These two conspirators, essentially, together, husband and wife, this power couple, and they're going to sing a duet that is one of the things that was added for this Parisian version of Macbeth, Time of Death. Because previously, Macbeth alone had had an aria here, but Verdi really liked amping up the drama by having these two kind of giving each other courage, egging each other on. It's a wonderful piece. Oh, 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 oh,
listening to Verdi's Macbeth, and we've just finished the third act with our husband, Macbeth, and our wife, Lady Macbeth, encouraging each other to more evil deeds, more murder. But we begin in a very different place with the fourth act. This is also a piece that was added for the Parisian version of the show. And some have said, and possibly even Verdi, that he wanted it to have something of the feel of Va Pensiero, that very famous choral piece from Nabucco, which if you want to hear more about, that's episode 104 of Opera for Everyone. But that's a very powerful chorus of displaced people, a chorus of people who are being ruled by powerful people who are not of them, who are usurpers, or, or in the case of Va Pensiero, they are exiles. They are away from their homeland. And this piece is called Patria Oppressa, or Oppressed Homeland. And it's, we'll play just a little clip of it, but it's a very slow moving piece. It doesn't quite have that. I'm going to go out and sing, sing it in the streets that Va Pensiero did. And Va Pensiero, speaking of politics of the time, that becomes one of the anthems of the Italians during Verdi's day, looking to liberate themselves from Austrian rule. Yeah, it wasn't lost on me when realizing that the opera is first performed in, is it 1847? So that's one year before the, the famous 1848 European conflagration. I mean, there, there are revolutions in almost every European country in 1848. So uh, he's, he's writing this and it's being performed in a time of deep uncertainty, very similar to the deep uncertainty of 1606 as well. And it's, it's well known that Verdi had nationalistic sympathies and meaning, in this case, nationalism, where we want the foreigners out. We don't want them ruling over us. I've said this before on other Verdi operas, but Viva Verdi became a, a rallying cry. And Verdi, in this case, standing not just for this accomplished composer, but for Vittorio Emmanuel, re d'Italia, king of Italy, Victor Emmanuel. So Verdi's deeply entwined with the whole nationalistic movement in Italy. So back to our opera, <laughs> Patria Oppressa. Let's hear a little clip of these Scottish refugees.
that was the Scottish refugees who are suffering under the misrule of King Macbeth. And towards the end of this, Macduff will appear. This Macduff who was part of the inner circle, but has realized that he's got to get away from Macbeth. Macbeth is the problem. He may not know the depths of his debauchery, but he knows Macbeth is the problem. Yes, and and there's a scene that does not appear in the opera, but is in the original play, which is the death of Macduff's family. So Macduff has fled to England because he has decided that Macbeth is a tyrant, rightly so, and he wants to help Malcolm, who is the son of Duncan, to come back and reclaim his birthright, basically. And Malcolm has fled to England. So Malcolm and Macduff have been plotting. But Macduff, he makes a very odd choice, which is that he flees and leaves his entire family. He is a man with a wife and many children, young children. And he leaves them unprotected. And there's a scene that is, I think, one of the most powerful in the play where Lady Macduff is getting the news that her husband has fled and that she's in danger. And she gets the news right as the assassins come for her. So she can't do anything. And she, she has her young son who is like, he's usually played as like eight or nine, who tries to protect her as the assassins come in and all of her children and she they're killed and and she she's mad at Macduff she says how could he leave us unprotected and so there's this idea of sacrifice there that he is trying to save the whole country and the price he has to pay is the death of his whole family and the destruction of his line he can never have a line of kings that's not the prophecy it's Banquo not Macduff Mm -hmm. because his whole line will be wiped out and this, I mean, Macbeth has many sins to his name, but this is the sin that is, I think, in some ways the worst of his crimes, because this is the murder of of people who are entirely unconnected to anything. These are not, the, these children, this woman, they are not a threat to him. Right. But he kills them out of revenge because he can't kill Macduff. It's, it's, um, it's mobster behavior, to be honest. Yes. And in the opera, I think all the pathos that you just explained, that gets poured into this one magnificent aria that Macduff sings, Alas, a Father's Hand. And honestly, it brings tears to my eye. It is so powerful. This father who realizes that he was not there to protect his family, his wife, his innocent, defenseless children. And this is just gut wrenching and. This is opera emotion at its prime. And in this clip, we're going to listen to Jose Carreras singing this amazing tenor aria, the one where Verdi had said, this aria will be enough for this singer.
emotional but at the end we're getting to revive a little bit that music that martial sounding music it's martial for a reason malcolm with whom mcduff has been communicating has arrived with troops kathleen can you remind us who malcolm is yeah so malcolm is one of two sons of the, the murdered king duncan and he's the one that was crowned the crown prince by Duncan before he died. So he is the legitimate successor to the throne. And he is there with the troops. Everyone's on stage. We've got the the soldiers, we've got the refugees, we've got Macduff, and they will sing a song that rallies them and gets them ready to do the battle that they must do. But before that happens, we have a really important scene. Yeah, maybe the most important scene, in my opinion, and definitely one of the most famous. We go to Lady Macbeth, and she is being watched over by her maid and a doctor because she has gone completely mad. She has been sleepwalking and speaking in her sleep things that she should not say. And she has been washing, attempting to wash her hands over and over and over, or rubbing them, maybe not actually using water, but she's rubbing her hands together as if she's trying to wash them. And this is the famous out, out, damned spot. Right, that she can never rid her hands of the stain or the stink of her deeds. Mm -hmm. She says, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. It is impossible for her to to wash away her sins. And to hearken back to my earlier comment about the, the murder of Lady Macduff and her her children, she references this. She says, the Thane of Fife, who is Macduff, she says, was he not recently a husband and a father? What happened? So <sighs> she's heard this, she knows, and, and we never see this as an exchange between Macbeth and his wife. One mm-hmm. of the interesting things about this part of the show is that they are not talking to each other anymore and will never talk to each other again. Right. We see them talking constantly at the beginning of the play, but now he is doing things without talking them through with her, without informing her. So she somehow found out that Macduff's whole family has been killed. And and I like Mm. to think that's the thing that really sends her over the edge. She was primed, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's a sense in which the murder of this mother and her children, she has never been a mother. 
all of her big words about how she would have killed a, a child if she'd promised to, it all kind of comes to nothing in the end because the, the guilt of it weighs so heavily on her. She is haunted. You know, that reminds me of one of the comments that Macduff makes in the prior scene when Malcolm tries to cheer him and say, yes, you are going to get revenge on Macbeth. And Macduff just says, how could I? He has no children. Yeah. Yeah, which is such a fantastic little double comment because mm -hmm. it's he can never feel what I feel because he doesn't mm -hmm. have children, but also I can't do to him what he did to me. Exactly. And there's this little moment there of what if he did have children? Would this continue as I kill your children because you killed mine? I think there's definitely a possibility of that in this in this play because it's so brutal. But yes, this play has the, the, the acts of Lady Macbeth and, and Macbeth have really destroyed her sanity. She is sleepwalking and she has this, this fantastic scene where she tries to, to get out the stain from her hands. Right. Often simply referred to as the sleepwalking scene. It's also one of those pieces that appears in many operas, the mad scene. Mm -hmm. But truth be told, it's not just a mad scene. As we will discover later, it's also her dying aria, mm -hmm. because this is the last we hear from Lady Macbeth. On the topic of Lady Macbeth herself, or the singer who plays Lady Macbeth, just one little thing I wanted to share. I mentioned early on when Verdi was getting ready to create this opera, he wanted to secure this one particular baritone, or he wanted a strong baritone, and he got this one particular man who he knew was excellent actor, excellent singer, and it gave him confidence, yes, this is what I will produce for you all. There were conversations about the soprano who'd play this other important, critical part, and this one accomplished, phenomenal soprano becomes available, and he rejects her, and, and people can't quite wrap their heads around it. And he has written another one of these letters. He, he wrote, he said, her name is Eugenia Tadolini. Her qualities are too great for this role. A ridiculous thing to say, you might think. But I want Lady Macbeth to look ugly and malignant. Mm. Tadolini sings to perfection. And I would rather that Lady did not sing at all. Well, I don't think he actually meant that. But <laughs> <laughs> Tadolini has a marvelous voice. And I would rather that Lady's voice were rough hollow, stifled. Mm. Tadellini's voice has something angelic in it. Lady's voice should have something devilish. That's great. It's really underscoring that point that we're not bel canto anymore. We mm -hmm. are gone from the world of bel canto where no matter what's going on, it has to be beautiful. It sounds beautiful. Mm -hmm. He wants to get at the meat of the drama. That's so interesting. And, and, I am of the mind that that is the correct thing. Again, I think Verity and I are, are on the same page about everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can't make her her beautiful. There's a harshness to her that that is unique among Shakespearean heroines for sure. Too, she's one of those roles that every great female Shakespearean actor wants to play because right. you have to be very very ugly in spirit, if not in body. And there's just a, a roughness to her character that is unique among the heroines. Let's hear a little bit of her sleepwalking, mad death aria.
Well, that's the last we're going to hear of Lady Macbeth. But Macbeth himself, we see separately, and he's having a hard time with it all. Yes. So he, well, he learns of Lady Macbeth's death. He has an interesting reaction to it. It's almost a a reaction of like, I can't think about that now. And another one of those incredibly famous Shakespeare lines that you don't necessarily realize is from Macbeth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so this in the play, this is another really, really famous monologue from Macbeth. This is probably the one thing you may be familiar with. Life is a tale told by an idiot, all sound and fury signifying nothing. Basically, he's saying, you know, we're just we're just actors that we we strut and fret our part on the stage and then we we die, basically. Um, so he he takes her death and he he doesn't individualize it. He doesn't grieve it as this is my wife who has died. Right. And it's it's assumed that her her death is a suicide as well. But he just sort of says, you know, death is death. We all come to death and, and everybody is headed that way. As he himself, I think, understands at this point that he is also heading that way because as soon as he learns of her death, he's also learning another thing, which is that Burnham Wood is somehow moving down to Dunsinane, the castle. Right. Well, because we've heard in the prior scene, Malcolm and Macduff tell the soldiers to grab branches and camouflage themselves with branches from Burnham Wood and on the move. I needed to tell you a little story about Burnham Wood on the move. (laughs) Years ago, I saw one of the most inventive, enjoyable productions of Macbeth that I can imagine. It was this innovative theater company called We Players in San Francisco who used Fort Point, the old fort at the base of the Golden Gate Bridge, to stage Macbeth. And they did it at night, and it took place all over this fort. It was amazing. But when they needed crowd scenes, they just used us, the mm. uh, the audience. And I got told to branch uh-huh. and be part of Marching Burnham Wood. That was very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> you had a very small part in the overthrow of the tyrant. <laughs> and I'm very proud to recount it. Okay. Macbeth hears all of this, and he does, in fact, have an aria that he talks about all the things that he's going to miss in life, all the comforts of old age. Hard to work up tremendous amount of pity for this man, but but he tries to get us there. But when he decides he's going to get serious and fight, I just want to play a little clip of that moment with this powerful baritone. And this is another one of those times when Verdi employs acapella singing. He doesn't have the orchestra during some of the most fierce parts of Macbeth singing this determination. Right, we're coming down to the wire here. Malcolm, Macduff, and the soldiers are ready to confront the tyrant Macbeth. Macbeth is all geared up and ready, and Burnham Wood may have moved, but he still knows that he has some protection based on the prophecy. Yes, but I think he probably should have figured out that that something was gonna <laughs> was gonna screw that up. <laughs> and every loophole. single thing has come true except for that. It's true. So when Macduff and Macbeth come to fight, 
Macduff greets him. He calls him butcher of my my children. Legitimate. Once again, I think centering that death is, is really the most important one. And Macbeth says, you can't kill me. I, you know, I'm not even really going to fight you because no man born of woman can kill me. And of course, hmm. Macduff says, I wasn't born of woman. I was plucked from my mother's womb. So one assumes he means cesarean section, early cesarean section. So Macbeth, of course, hearing this, realizes that he has fully embraced the Greek tragedy of his life. Yes. And this is going to be his end. And in the original Italian 1847 version, the opera will end with Macbeth's dying song. Macbeth sings about his ultimate demise, and that is the end of the opera. Not so with the Paris version. Yeah, so the great duel between Macduff and Macbeth takes place in in the play as well as these versions. But the play and, and the Paris version also conclude with this scene of Macduff and, and Malcolm and everybody kind of coming to a, uh, a restoration of order scene, which is mm-hmm. really common in Shakespeare yeah. and a lot of similar plays, a way of saying to the audience, we have catharsis and now order is restored. And I, I think this is really an important element of Macbeth because W.H. Auden, the, the 20th century poet, did a series of lectures on, on Shakespeare plays. And one of the things that he spoke about when it comes to Macbeth is the importance of the death of Macbeth at the end of this, that his death, and, and it's often staged as a decapitation, the, the actual literal cutting off of the, the head of state, that that is the only thing that can restore balance when a murder has been done. That the reason why we, we always want to watch plays and, and read books about a murder crime rather than another kind of crime is that mm. it's the only crime that really is a crime against society. It is the thing that makes society impossible to function. If murder is happening willy-nilly, you can't have a functioning society. You can't have a kingdom. You can't have a head of state if you're always thinking they're they're going to get killed. And so the only way to pay for that, to restore the balance, is to kill the killer. Um, so that Shakespeare's yeah. basically making a an argument, which is very common for his time, that capital punishment is correct. Perhaps not something our society would argue, but it is important for the balance of the play that Macbeth is decapitated and that Macduff and Malcolm are able to restore order and a new king is able to rise. Yeah. And it's, it's also within the context of a battle that it's these forces coming together and clashing and mm-hmm. they need to be defeated. And his death is part of that, Macbeth's death. Well, we do end with a rousing hymn of victory, as it's known. And it's the chorus led by Macduff and Malcolm. And they are, as you would expect from what we've heard before, they are praising God for the downfall of this evildoer. They are also praising God that they have their homeland restored to them. They no longer have to be refugees and they have a right and proper king. I have to say, I still don't exactly understand how, with Malcolm there, how it's going to be Banquo's descendants who rule, but oftentimes I have seen it staged where Fleance <laughs> yeah. comes on right at the end. You yeah. see him, because he's not a singing character, but it's you see a, him. It's a line of succession thing that I, I think like Shakespeare's audience would have understood better than than we perhaps do. And I'm sure there's a there's a family tree somewhere that makes that more clear. One of the interesting things that I think you can do with this play is 
uh, filmed version from the 70s actually has Malcolm's brother, Donald Bain, come in at the end and go to the witches. The idea that that there is going to be a further cycle of this disruption and that that's part mm-hmm. of why Banquo's basically like the idea that Banquo's family is the only one that isn't sort of participating in this Game of Thrones. <laughs> but um, But that's apocryphal, I will say. Oh, my goodness. Well, we have to thank Verity for this music that helps us enjoy it in this amazing operatic version. Let's listen to this hymn of victory, which concludes Verdi's Macbeth. And Kathleen, thank you for joining me once more on Opera for Everyone. Always happy to talk Shakespeare and opera. Oh! <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera is for everyone. everyone.